everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Lighthearted. My name is Anna. And my name is Bracey, and we're two average gals chatting about what it means to grow. All right. Well, before I ask you how you're growing, I just had the thought as we were saying that, I wonder if we switched the way that we intro, if anyone would notice. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I say it so automatically now that if anybody <laughs> listens on the reg, that they probably wouldn't notice. <laughs> okay. Well, we might be trying to sneak up on you guys <laughs> in a few episodes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, just random thought. How are you growing this week? Well, I'm physically growing. My belly's getting kind of big. I'm starting to feel like a roly poly. So. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, and then I would say in general, I'm having a little bit of an anxious day. So I'm just trying Mm. to take a deep breath and like, yeah, do the things and keep it together. So, Mm -hmm. but I did have a funny story to tell you. Please dish. Okay. So I bought a body pillow, not a pregnancy pillow, because pregnancy pillows are freaking giant. They look very comfortable. I'm not like knocking anybody who's like, they're the best because I'm sure Mm -hmm. they are. But I like didn't want a pillow that big in the bed. Also, Seb is a stage five clinger when he sleeps. So like (laughs) having myself surrounded by pillow, I felt like I was just going to end up with him on top of me or something. Mm -hmm. So the body pillow allows me to have the pillow on one side and Seb on the other. Mm-hmm. But it's like crucial for those of you who don't know for you to sleep with a pillow in between your knees when you're pregnant. So like that's the like I needed the length for it to fit in between my knees. Wait, can you explain why that's crucial? It's because of there's this hormone in your body called relaxin that relaxes all of your ligaments um, to prepare you for birth. Okay, but that means that like when you sleep on your side normally. Your knees are at a decline from your hips, which in a normal person wouldn't matter. In a pregnant person, it like it actually hurts because the everything's re- like relaxed through your hips. Oh. So having the pillow in between your knees like stacks your knees up so they're not on a decline. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. I sleep with a pillow between my knees anyway. So well, there you go. You're I'm ahead set. of the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I've noticed a couple of times in the last week that in his sleep, which Seb is a very like weird sleeper. He does stuff in his sleep. That's funny all the time. But in his sleep, he's been like checking to make sure that the pillows in between my knees. And I was like, (laughs) I told him about it. I was like, this is so nice. Like you're so sweet and considerate in your sleep that you're like making sure that my pillow is there so that I don't hurt in the morning. Yeah. And then last night we were sleeping and he like pulled the pillow so that it was under his knees. And I was like, oh, you just want it in between your knees. This is not for me. (laughs) And so today, this morning, I was like, okay, so remember when I told you that you were doing this really sweet thing? I just realized that you're doing it because you want the pillow between your knees, not my knees. And he was like, (laughs) yeah. I was like, you knew that when I told you the story. And he was like, yeah. He's just jealous. Yeah, he just really likes the pillow between his legs. So, but he's pulling it in his sleep. Yeah, but he's pulling it through his legs to or through my legs to his legs. Yeah. Wow. So. Seb, come on. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny that he didn't fess up from the beginning. He yeah. just let me think that he was being really nice in his sleep. Yeah. He's like, "How long can I convince her that this is why I'm doing this?" Mm-hmm. Extra bonus points. That's yep. really funny. Yeah. So at some point I woke up too and he was like sleeping with it between his knees when I had gone to the bathroom. He's like, okay. 
Okay. This is it sounds like maybe Seb needs a pregnancy pillow. <laughs> well, I was like, I asked him too. I was like, what are you going to do when we don't sleep with us anymore? And he was like, why would we do that? <laughs> it's like this is a part of our bed now yeah so i guess this I'm is the third party here yeah. glad i didn't get the giant one because then he might have gotten really attached to it yeah then you would have it would have been bad yeah so that's so funny that was my funny story for the day i love it thanks so much i love starting off with a funny story <laughs> well how are you growing um okay i have two one is that this morning i went on a walk when i first got up Took Millie on a walk. I feel like there's so much research about like getting some sunlight first thing in the morning and like how that's so good for you and helps your sleep cycle and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know what? We're going to go on a little, a little gal's walk. And it was lovely. And that I listened nice. to a podcast and I just, yeah, had a great time. Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to continue incorporating that into my daily life as much as possible. Yeah, I um try to like walk out on the deck at least in the morning when I let the yeah. dogs out into the backyard because it really does. It just is nice in the morning to like just be outside for a few minutes. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, and then the other way is yesterday when I was listening to our episode on boundaries to give any uh, editing feedback. I realized that I had this like under giggle or something like the whole time that I was talking about Ooh. boundaries. And I was like, Oh, like my discomfort is a nervous giggle. showing so <laughs> much. Like, I mean, I feel like I just did it. It was like an, yeah, just a, a, a slight giggle, like basically the whole time that I was talking. Interesting. I did not notice that when we were talking. I'm, I mean, I'm really glad because I was like, wow, this is so obnoxious. So I don't know. I think, I don't know if I'm. I'm growing and noticing that and I just want to spend a little more time like exploring it and then also trying to like push myself to talk about things that are uncomfortable without doing that because I'm like, oh, what message am I trying to send by doing this giggle or am I trying to comfort myself? Am I trying to make people think that whatever I'm saying is not that serious? So don't take it that serious or – yeah, that's interesting. Or is it like a nervous system regulation tactic? Or mm, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. Yeah, just, so I'm growing by listening to our episodes. Is yeah, what I'm saying self awareness, <laughs> man. It's very important. Okay, so today we are talking about the book Bittersweet by Susan Cain, which I listened to Susan on first on uh, Unlocking Us by Brene Brown, and then mm-hmm. I also listened to her episode on. Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. Okay. And Susan Cain is also the author of Quiet, which is the book that made famous the idea of like introverts and how like there's power in introversion and a lot of the differences between introverts and extroverts. So yeah, that was a I good know. book, but I was interested in Bittersweet too. I want to listen to Quiet or read it. I haven't, I haven't done that yet after I read Bittersweet, but I think it sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So... I loved her episodes, her podcast episodes. So I was like, I really want to read the book. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do it as an episode. Here we are. Um, Here we are doing it. <laughs> Look at this follow through. <laughs> I know. Pat myself on the back. Um, but also I realized that I feel like I have, I already have like a very instinctive appreciation for bittersweetness. And I think it's mm-hmm. because I'm an Enneagram four. I think there's like a mm. correlation between capacity for like an appreciation for bittersweetness and mm-hmm. you're like just specifically Enneagram fours. 
Okay. That's interesting. And I also, I thought about, cause I listened to her on Armchair Expert. Oh. And she was talking about that people tend to score high on her bittersweet quiz that is in the book and is also on her website. If you want to take it, it's super short. It takes like one or two minutes to do it. That people who score high on the like highly sensitive persons quiz tend to have like a higher bittersweet score. And so I was like, oh, I'm so curious to hear like what Bracey's score was. I actually, yeah, I am not surprised about that at all. But I actually didn't even bother to take it because I was like, I'm 1000% a bittersweet person. I don't like need to take the quiz to know that. Okay, but I kind (laughs) of want you to take it. Because I want to know, I want to know what questions you scored the highest on. Okay, do you want me to do it right now? Yeah, take it right now. And then you can read the questions. All right, everybody pause. Okay, I just took it. It's really fast for anybody who's wondering, but I got an eight. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What'd you get? I got a 4.3. Okay. All right. I mean, I knew I was going to be high on the scale, which is why I didn't even bother. Okay. Yeah. And it'll explain it if you end up, if you decide to take it, it'll explain it. But I, okay. So if you score between a zero and a 3.8, then you tend more toward the sanguine, which is a really hard word to say, (laughs) which means cheerfully optimistic. And then if you score between a 3.9 and a 5.7, you move easily between being cheerfully optimistic and bittersweet states. And then if you're between a 5.8 and a 10, you are a true connoisseur of bittersweetness is what the website says. So where the light and the dark meet, which is such a romantic phrase. I love that. Um, Okay. I want to know what are the questions that you scored the highest on? Okay. So the question that was, do you know what the author C.S. Lewis meant when he described joy as a sharp, wonderful stab of longing? That was, I put 10 on that one. I was like, I definitely get that. Okay. And then the one I, I think that I scored the lowest was do you react intensely or whatever to old photographs. I don't feel mm. a lot of nostalgia most of the time. Yeah, I agree. Okay. My highest one, which won't be surprising at all, was the question about when you are talking with like friends and such, do you, are you interested in like talking about their past? And, yeah. Like, their struggles and all that. Yeah, I, I put like, a mm-hmm. nine or ten on that one too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, who doesn't want to talk about the important stuff instead of just like filler? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. So you got an eight. Wow. Yeah, I guess I'm not surprised, but that's so high. I mean, I just really appreciate bittersweetness. Also, bittersweet lady. I love that she kind of frames the book in reference to sad music. Like her love of Leonard Cohen is like woven throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And also the story of the cellist in Sarajevo is I have heard the story. I think I've heard her tell it on her podcast three times or okay. like, I guess the two podcasts in the book. So yeah. I've heard it. I heard it three times. I c- literally cried every single time, every time <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know what happens and I'm still going to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Um, but yeah, so the the music part, has, I really resonated with that because sad music does make me feel good. Like it, Maybe not good, but like I f- feel very moved by sad music. Um, yeah. And when we did our year in review, we did a section on music and like our favorite mm-hmm. songs from the year. And one of mm-hmm. mine was Saturn by Sleeping at Last. And that's a mm-hmm. very bittersweet song. Yeah. I I felt very seen, especially like the teenage version of myself felt very seen when she was talking about sad music because all of my favorite love songs are sad ones. 
And it's kind of always been that way. And I used to feel really weird about it. Like, I don't know. I didn't want to like talk about it to people because I was like, why is that my favorite? Like, why is this sadness make me happy (laughs) or something? Like, why am I feeling so much from it? So I felt kind of odd about it. I also felt weird about like having like a song with somebody, you know, like when you're Mm -hmm. dating somebody and you want to have a song. It feels weird to pick a song that is not a happy love song. Yeah, that's true. Also, like in my scenario, I feel like I can sometimes like overthink what song it should be or like Mm -hmm. maybe like what if we break up and I then I can't listen to the song anymore. (laughs) I don't want to pick one that's too good. (laughs) Right. Pick like a really (laughs) mediocre song. Yeah. Just in case. Uh, Okay. Well, what are some of your favorite bittersweet songs? I feel like a lot of my favorite songs are bittersweet. So um, the song Vienna by Billy Joel, which is like having a TikTok resurgence right now, which is really weird, is mm-hmm. so, so good. Um, to Make You Feel My Love, which is Billy Joel or Adele. The Adele version is really good. Yeah, I have that one on my list as well. Um, Manhattan by Sarah Bareilles. It's so sad and it's so good. Okay. Well, anything Sarah Bareilles, I feel like is automatically <laughs> sad. But she has a couple of like happy ones, but her song, her music is great. Yeah. The Lighthouse's Tale by Nickel Creek is like truly depressing and okay. really good. Okay. Um, also, Lighthouse Keeper by Sam Smith. Okay. I don't know a lot of those. I'm going to have to go listen to them. Or maybe I, I've heard them before and I just don't know the names. I feel like Lighthouse Keeper is a relatively new one. And I okay. actually think it might be a Christmas song or like on his Christmas album, but I don't think it's very Christmassy. So. Okay. And then God Only Knows, which has about 5 million different versions and mm-hmm. fire and rain by james taylor oh wow fire and rain mm-hmm. oh yeah that's a great one yeah what about you oh that just gave me goosebumps on <laughs> bittersweet bittersweet all right i also have skinny love by bonnie Vera mm-hmm. on there mm-hmm. and honestly like the whole album is i yeah. would say is bittersweet because it's the title of the album is for emma forever ago so I feel like the whole vibe of the album. Uh, also, the style of his music is very bittersweet, I think. Mm-hmm. And this is an album I would listen to like while I was working out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can listen to this stuff anytime. Yeah. And then Leave the Light On by Maggie Rogers. Mm-hmm. And then Slow Dancing in a Burning Room by John Oh, Yes. That's a good one. So good. And when I was... I was making this list and then I think like the next day when I was driving the car, I was like, oh, and this one too and this one too. And then I forgot to write them down. So now I do not remember what they were. But <laughs> yeah, so many good, 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 bittersweet songs. It's the best. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So one of the things that was probably, I guess, maybe my di- biggest takeaway from the book is mm-hmm. the relationship between joy and sorrow and how they're basically – intertwined. And I love that because I feel like for my whole life, I've always felt like the lower you can feel the lows, the higher you can feel the highs. Like I've really, Mm. truly have always felt like that was true. And Mm. it's like your emotional range. And seeing her explain the correlation between joy and sorrow made me think of that. And like, I felt validated in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And I feel like Although sometimes I feel like my swing in my emotions is so large that it does, it's like, oh my God, like what is this roller coaster 
Uh, but it is, I think I would prefer that over like always kind of feeling like this steady consistency or something. Yeah. Like the, it's more like a limited range. I don't think it, I don't think it is healthier. I mean, I don't think it's bad either for people who don't feel big swings, but yeah, I just think it's a more limited range of feeling and like some people just feel deeper and higher. And I personally am glad that I feel like that, even though it sometimes makes me cry the same story three times. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any particular area in your life that you feel like this shows up a lot, like this big range? I actually don't think so. I, the, the way that I can really see it in myself is that sometimes I just feel so grateful and like happy and joyful that I cry from mm-hmm. like happiness. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I don't think that I really started doing that until I was more of an adult and like had an appreciation for things that I didn't mm-hmm. as like a child or teenager. But yeah, I think that that like that gratitude and the ability to like cry from joy is like a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Definitely don't cry a lot, but it does make me wonder. I feel like the reason I don't cry is because I won't let myself cry, not because I don't need to cry or want to cry or am moved to cry. I just can – I'm so practiced at stopping it. Um, Yeah. Well, that actually brings up an interesting point because she talks a lot in the book about um, how creativity is related to bittersweetness and how, like, mm -hmm. we have this stereotype of the tortured artist and, like, they're depressed, but they're, like – incredible artists and all this stuff and those people tend to Mm -hmm. be more bittersweet people and she also talks a little bit about how expression in itself is like actually very healthy so there was a study that was done about i think it was like men who were laid off from work Mm mm-hmm the ones who wrote in a journal about the things that they were struggling with were more yeah. likely to get a job faster and also had better health outcomes than ones who didn't. So like literally just expressing yourself mm-hmm. about what's like what you're having trouble with is actually healthier. So yeah, I think that's interesting, like your correlation between like the crying and then also creative expression and mm-hmm. expression itself. Well, and you are an incredibly creative person, and I feel like you're always doing creative things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like I I, I really appreciate the way she talks about creativity because I think growing up, I was – growing up, I always thought that, like, you're a creative person or you're not. Mm-hmm. But I don't – I don't think that's true anymore, and she talks about it. It's – creativity is something we're all born with, and – it's also like a muscle that you can practice and mm-hmm. some people are just like more practiced at being creative than other people. Yeah. I think too, growing up, I only thought about creativity in terms of like producing art. Art, Yeah. And that was it. And it's like, yeah. oh no, there's like a million ways to be creative. Well, also then there's two, sometimes I feel like, like you say I'm creative and I, and I know that I am, but I think when I'm not producing things, I don't mm. feel creative when I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah. I mean, even just in my brain, I feel like there's always something like, you know, kind of worrying around something's, in there that's creative. Doing. Yeah. yeah. So, and also to, for those of you listening, if you're interested in like this creativity specific portion of this conversation, I would recommend the book Big Magic by Liz Gilbert. I just re-listened to it and 
the way she just talks about creativity is so good. And it's encouraging for everybody to listen to because I do feel like we are meant to be creative. And Mm -hmm. some people are, again, just more practiced at it than others. Okay, let me add that to my list. I love her too. She's like, probably one of my follow ups to Oprah and Renee. Is she? What else has she written? She wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which she talks about in the book. She was like, I didn't set out to write this like big bestseller. Like that wasn't the idea. Yeah. Um, It just turned into like this thing that wasn't mine anymore. And she, I love Mm -hmm. the way she talks about ideas because she talks about them as like individual entities. And she tells a story about how she had this idea for a book and she had some life stuff happen and she wasn't able to like what she calls like work with the idea and like actually write the book that she was going to write. And literally one of her friends years later ended up writing the exact same book, almost, almost exactly the same. And she talks about how she just believes that the idea like needed to be expressed and like moved on to somebody else so that that Mm -hmm. could happen. Yeah. So she's really interesting too. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's talk about her chapter on positivity and smiling in America. Yeah, this was fascinating. Yeah, because she writes that Americans smile more than any other society in the world. Yeah. Which is really crazy. And I, I don't know, it was fascinating to think about, like, why do we do that? When did it start? Why does everybody smile in photographs, even if you're not happy? Like, Right. Well, and I... I may be misremembering this, so don't quote me on it. But I think she said something along the lines of, like, other societies are like, why are you smiling? Like, why yeah. are you smiling all the time? <laughs> yeah, they're like, hey, are you guys okay? Yeah, which I thought was really weird. funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was really fascinating how she she kind of started with Calvinism and how our country was built on some of the tenets of Calvinism, which one of them being, like – the harder you work, the more likely it is that you're going to get into heaven or like at least be seen as being like noble or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how that kind of evolved into winning and working hard as being like successful and how during the Great Depression when a bunch of people quote unquote failed, like financially failed, mm-hmm. they were called things like losers and the suicide rate really went up. So, yeah, I just thought the concept of, like, the winning and losing and, like, being a loser is, like, one of the worst things you can be called, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's so binary. It's like, oh, yeah. you're either a winner or a loser. And there's really only one person, like, that can win. You know, like, when you think about competitions and that mm-hmm. stuff, like, there's only there's only one first place. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, as Americans, I feel like a lot of times we're very focused on like being the best. And what are the totally. odds of you actually being the best? Like very right. slim. So slim, <laughs> like minuscule. Yeah. I remember that makes me think about there is a YouTube video and I can't remember right now like what who the gymnast is, but it's about getting second. Mm. And how that's just, often harder than like losing by a lot. Like I know that silver mm-hmm. medal medalists are like often more displeased with their outcomes than like bronze or anybody else. Yeah. But it and just how nobody cares about second place. Like yeah. even though you're doing this like world competition and you're literally the second best in the whole world, 
and how that is somehow not impressive or something. Or like, like a major failure. Like you yes. failed because you're second best in the whole yeah. world. <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up and send it to you. It was really yeah interesting and also like very sad. And this, this part kind of resonated with me because I've always had a big insecurity about being average at everything. Mm. Um, and it totally comes from, yeah, like our societal pressure and culture of like being the best and being number one. And if you're not that, who cares about you? Yeah. I've had that too. I feel like, especially in high school, I had this thing where I was like always slightly above average, but never the best at anything. Like I was, Mm -hmm. I was pretty good at a lot of things, but never like really good at one thing. So I felt Mm -hmm. like I didn't have like a, a place where I was succeeding. I was just like kind of getting by everywhere. So yeah, I feel you on that. Um, One thing that I did really Probably my biggest takeaway, I think, came from these couple of chapters. And I wish I could find the direct quote, but it's she was talking about how people don't want to try things because they don't want to feel disappointed or they mm. and they don't want to feel insecure about themselves and they don't want all these things. And she says something like, well, those are the dreams of dead people. Oh. And I... Yeah, I don't know. I talked to Taylor about it after I read that part and I was like, it just it felt a little bit freeing because it's like, yeah, like you're not you're not going to go through life and not feel those things. Mm-hmm. And those aren't bad emotions. Like they just are feelings that you might experience. Yeah. Um and I don't know. I just I liked the phrasing of that a lot. Yeah. I think too we have in our society a lot of issues with like not starting things because of X, Y, and Z. Like totally fear of failure, fear Mm -hmm. of like not being perfect. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing she talks about was effortless perfection and how college students often feel like they have to be seen as perfect and nobody can see them struggling or working Mm -hmm. hard. Like you, Mm -hmm. like you have to be perfect on paper and especially on social media, but like nobody can see that you've been working hard at it. Yeah. Which is backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, and I thought about this too in the way that, you know, when you see people on either Instagram or TikTok or maybe in your real life or whatever that looks so effortlessly perfect, like in their mm-hmm. appearance, it's like, oh, they just threw that together and they spent no time on it. And, and maybe they didn't, I don't know. But usually people that look like so insanely put together, it's like, yeah, they probably put time in that, which is totally fine. Yeah. But it's like, create, it's, an effort to create perfection that you didn't have to try for or something like that. And right. how that just like yeah, feeds into comparison and absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and too, I think about like the influencers you see who do have that kind of like curated effortless perfection type of feed. And I just think about how, yeah, their feed looks great. And like, it is a, again, that's a creative expression. Like I'm not knocking the way that yeah. they express themselves. But, like, think about how much work that they put into, like, learning how to take pictures that look that good and, like, staging their life to work around their aesthetic. Like, that's – my life doesn't have an aesthetic. I feel like if I tried to put an aesthetic on it, it would take a lot of, like, effort. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, too, when you – when those – when people tend to, like, peel back the curtain, they're like, oh, I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm actually miserable. I'm – I'm putting on this front that everything is perfect because that's how I want people to see me. And that's what our society has deemed important. Yeah. 
and then, but it's like, that's not real for anybody. Like Mm-mm. it's just not attainable nope. or sustainable or anything like that. True. Okay. Well, one of my favorite parts of this whole thing is, well, actually I'll, let me bring it back to part of the podcast on uh, unlocking us because I feel like they kind of tied these two together. Mm-hmm. Brene said something about how the most vulnerable feeling is not like shame or guilt or fear or any of those mm-hmm. things. It's actually joy because it's hard for us to accept and like sit in joy when we know that it might not be forever. Mm. And Brene calls it foreboding joy. And she references it specifically in her life to parenting and how sometimes when things are really, really good, it's hard to not have like an immediate fear response because what if something bad happens? Yeah. And I think this is really common for people. Like it's hard for us to just sit in our joy and like accept the joy because what if something goes wrong? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And I feel like it's probably true. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) And they talk a little bit about too, I think Susan Cain's point is that a way to help with that is to normalize impermanence, to like accept Mm -hmm. that nothing is permanent and that your Mm -hmm. state changes all the time and that people, you know, people do die and like that whole peace is inevitable mm-hmm. and accept that, you know, you can be appreciative of the moment. So like I'm living more moment to moment helps with mm-hmm. those things. That makes me think of a video I watched the other day about this guy who he was talking about how our society is always like chasing happiness mm-hmm. and like that, that the goal of being happy is like number one. And if you're not like you're failing and, and um, but talked about people who aren't chasing happy or actually like happier. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this whole book I feel like is a conversation about normalizing like emotions that aren't happiness mm-hmm. and how I feel like truly how much better off we all are if we just accept that like lows are part of life. Mm-hmm. And I think too, it's, yeah, I think in the normalizing, it doesn't make the, the days where you aren't feeling you know, joyous or happy or whatever as like concerning Mm -hmm. because I feel like we, yeah, we place so much value on those good emotions, quote unquote. And like, I feel like I see this at school all the time. Like when people are like, Hey, can you check in with this person? Like they seem a little down today. And not that that's bad. Like it's, I'm happy to check in with people. And I love when people check in with me if things still seem off or whatever, but oftentimes it's just like, yeah, just something's off today or I got in a fight with my friend and, and it's like, oh, like it's okay that that happened. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> all of that, all these things are really normal. Yeah. Um, like you're not failing because you're having negative feelings or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I like how she connects the capacity for sorrow to the capacity for like creation and connection and expression like mm-hmm. those things go hand in hand she talks a little bit about how our vagus nerve like mm-hmm. impacts all of this which i like the science behind that it's really cool yeah that yeah like compassion is like sitting and suffering mm-hmm. which like doesn't mean that it's comfortable 
No. Like, I, I mean, I don't think it's supposed okay to be comfortable. Sit there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to sit there. Yeah. Okay. Um, another section of a book that I really liked was when she talked about mourning non-death situations, because this is actually something that I learned in grad school. And I maybe have talked about it on an episode before, or maybe you and I have just talked about it before that we had to read this article about this. I think it was a New York times article about a, some parents who had just had their baby. And it turns out that their baby had a terminal illness. Um, and it was like, Oh, I, it was something that started with a T, but it was the baby would kind of like grow normally for the first like two years of their life. And then after that would start to deteriorate and like, wouldn't make it past like four or five. And not only like grieving that like their child was going to die, but also grieving all of their dreams and hopes that they had had for how their child would live. Um, and you know, we had talked about this with parenting and stuff as well about how like, you know, it's hard not to place your own hopes and dreams onto your, if you have children, like onto like what they might be like or what they might be interested in all of that stuff. But it totally made me think about this as I feel like we typically only apply grief to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just isn't true. Like we grieve yeah. things all the time. Like when things don't go the way that you wanted them to go, like when plans get canceled, when like just all, there's so many different types of situations that are completely unrelated to death where you have to take the time to grieve, like what your expectations were. Mm-hmm. And that's helpful. Yeah. I think it's natural for us to plan for the future and to like think about Mm -hmm. what our future will look like. And there Mm -hmm. are things that happen that change that. And Mm -hmm. you are grieving a future that you no longer have. Yeah. And also sometimes too, you're grieving like an identity change. And I'm even thinking of places where it might be an identity change that you wanted or chose. And it's still hard to like, shift from one to the other Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like i mean i don't personally feel like this right now but i can see how becoming a mother you would grieve the person that you were before like when you had more alone time and like you know ability to do you and like be a person (laughs) be a person outside of another human yeah um that's a huge one that might trigger like a little bit of grief yeah well and i think going through a breakup that you initiated. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. I felt that many times. Yeah, totally. That, and I think I, for a while was in a relationship where we like broke up and then got back together and broke up and got back together. And it was because I wasn't realizing that like, just because I was grieving this person and missing that person, like that didn't mean that we should be back together. Just because, yeah. Just because you're sad doesn't mean that it was the right place to be. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that one, that was definitely like an impactful part of the book for me. Yeah, I think too with grief, it's hard because I think literally every situation where you're grieving anything is different. It's Mm -hmm. grief is a very hard emotion for other people to understand. I don't Mm -hmm. think that it's like something that is easy for you to like commiserate with another person about. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a tough one too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people grieve so differently. Mm -hmm. Like there's not one right way to do it. 
And like the grief process, I think is kind of all over the map. It's not like a steady incline or decline. It's just like random ups and downs. Yeah. And yeah, it's not, it's not linear either. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, I feel like there are things that I still go through cycles of grief about today that maybe happened five years ago. Years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, are there any big bittersweet moments that you remember experiencing or like really changed you? Yeah. And I, I wrote down one of my notes was something about um, how our memories are related to sadness. Cause she talks about that. Typically your memories that are surrounded in sadness are surrounded in bittersweet. Like you're able to recall easier. Mm. And I feel like that's definitely true for me. I feel like I can remember every like fight that I've ever had with mm-hmm. anybody <laughs> like so well. Yeah. Um, and then tons of moments that weren't that way. I'm like, mm, I don't know. Who knows what happened during that time? Uh, but one of the biggest ones for me, I think, was when my dog Glenn died a few years ago. It was absolutely the worst. I still cry about it. Um, and it was like, literally, I think it was like five years ago, uh, almost, yeah, a little over five years ago that he died. And I, it was my first puppy I ever had on my own. And around like a year and a half, he was really sick and the, uh, we took him to the vet and they were basically like, you know, you could spend thousands and thousands of dollars and like, he's not going to get better. Um, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And when I think back on like the day that um, we took him in to be put to sleep, it like it was terrible. And like so many of my friends that also loved Glenn or that lived with him were there and we sat around petting him in the room and, you know, the vets there were so incredibly kind and I'm going to cry right now just talking about him. (laughs) Um, He was a good boy. He was such a good boy. Um, had a really big head, but we, yeah, sat around petting him and telling him that we forgave him for eating all of our underwear (laughs) and destroying it. Um, and it, it, it is like horrible as the experience was like, there is so much sweetness that I carry from it. And like, I'll never forget like how kind people were, um, both my friends and these people that didn't know me. And, um, like the vet, they sent me a card like a week later and they were like, and it was like a handwritten and like a long card about like how sorry they were. And like, so nice. It was so nice. And like, I think I felt so cared for that day too. like people being like, okay, we're going to go get lunch for you. Mm -hmm. We're going to go get you your favorite drink. Like, and it was just stuff that I was like, I was like in complete, like I was just like a whole mess the whole day. Um, And I don't know, it just, it was a very impactful day in a lot of ways, but some of them in good ways. Yeah. Um, That's a sweet story. And sad. And sad. Bittersweet. It's it's quite a bittersweet (laughs) story, I'd say. Um, But yeah, that's probably my biggest one. Oh, got Bracey crying. I mean, are you surprised? (laughs) We took a few few seconds to collect ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm going to keep it short because I will for sure cry if I talk too long. But... I feel like maybe one of the most bittersweet moments was when I was graduating college, I had nannied 
these three girls who mm-hmm. became very special to me. And leaving was truly terrible. <laughs> and yeah. their dad wrote me like a really sweet note about how much I had impacted them. And I wrote one back about how much they had impacted me. Yeah. So that was really sad. Yeah. <laughs> I still obviously have a hard yeah. time. But it was sad because it was so good, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I feel like I cry every time Taylor like writes me a card <laughs> for, <laughs> um, for anything. Like as soon as I open it, I'm already crying because I'm like, I know this is going to be so sweet. <laughs> like I know. That's one thing I actually don't cry at is like usually subs cards. He, they are sweet. He's he's a good card writer, but yeah. it's, it doesn't get me. Maybe I'm, yeah. I'm used to it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I totally feel you on that. Like I've, I have one family in particular that I babysat for for a long time and like they feel like my family. Like, so when you aren't with them anymore, it just, it, yeah, it, I don't know. It hurts. It's hard. It's hard yeah. to be away from people that you love. Um, so, aw. All right. And this, I feel like it's such a bittersweet moment in general because I'm like, wow, that I feel like we probably both are feeling a lot of emotion from talking about this. But then I also am like, wow, that was so nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's okay. enough crying for today. That's enough. All right. Everybody pull it together. All right. Well, one last question before we completely fall apart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> our, she talks about following your longing and how a lot of times people talk about their longing in in ways of like, oh, what am I passionate about or what do I want to do with my life? And she kind of phrases it more as, you know, think about what you long for and follow that because that is where your passion is. That is where um, you'll find your creativity and then it's fine. It'll You'll find where you want to be. Mm-hmm. So what do you long for? I really liked when she was talking about the longing in the book. Um, I feel like she talks a little bit about how she's not a religious or really even spiritual person, but mm-hmm. that she does understand the concept of longing and how kind of in her writing this book, she began to understand more and more about like spirituality and why people are spiritual. I think it comes back to longing and especially for me longing for, she talks about it in reference to longing for like the place we came from, like home. Mm -hmm. And I feel that very strongly. Yeah. Um, And I feel like that's part of the reason why I've become so interested in spirituality, because I've always just felt like there was more to all of this than like just being here and hanging out on the planet. So, um, yeah, I feel like my longing like has directed me in the direction of spirituality. Okay. Yeah. She, I just found the page that it was on and she she says, what are you longing for? You may not have asked yourself this question before. You may not have identified the important symbols in your life story. You may not have examined what they mean. You've likely asked other questions. What are my career goals? Do I want marriage and children? Is so-and-so the right partner? How can I be a good moral person? What work should I do? To what extent should my work define me? When should I retire? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, those are all questions that people absolutely talk about. Mm-hmm. And then she says, but have you asked yourself these questions in the deepest terms? Have you asked, what is the thing you long for most? Your unique imprint, singular mission, wordless calling. Have you asked, where on earth is your closest approximation of home? Literally, if you sat down and wrote home at the top of a piece of paper and waited a while, what would you write next? 
And if you have a bittersweet temperament or you've come to it via life experience, have you asked how to hold the melancholy within you? Have you realized that you're part of a long and storied tradition that can help you transform your pain into beauty, your longing into belonging? Oh, so pretty. So beautiful. Yeah. What do you long for? I, I feel like my ultimate longing is to help other people heal and, you know, see the patterns in their life and break their cycles and hold stories. Like that's my ultimate passion, I think, is holding stories. And I think too, um, she talks about in the podcast, at least that on Armchair Expert, they talk about whatever you are envying in other people, like you probably want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you can have, probably have it like, yeah. <laughs> um, or you can figure out a way to have a version of that. And I think traveling is a big one for me as well okay. as like being in nature and like seeing like how beautiful this world is. Yeah. Um, is definitely something I long for. Wow. That sounds great. Oh my goodness. Oh boy. This was an emotional one that I honestly didn't expect to be emotional. <laughs> I mean, you know how much I hate surprise crying. <laughs> I should have known that I wouldn't have made it through that without crying. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, once I start, it's really hard for me to stop. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, on that note, if you would <laughs> <laughs> like to hear us cry again, <laughs> we won't be here uh, in two Mondays. Um, you can email us at lightheartedpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear what your bittersweet score is, um, what you long for, all the things, anything that resonated with you from this episode, or if you've read the book and had totally different thoughts, send us an email. Yeah. And be sure to follow along on Instagram at lightheartedpod. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.